Greetings from Kiev. I'm your host, the one and only Terrell Starr, and welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats. And yes, I'm still in Ukraine, and I have no plans of leaving anytime soon, even if the Russians attack. I'll have more on that in the next episode. Today, we're discussing English language media in Ukraine and how important it is to have top-notch news out of this country that's in English so that the world can better understand what's going on here. Even more important, English language publications in Ukraine are essential because they are staffed with native Russian speakers who can spot Kremlin disinformation and debunk it when it reaches Western media ecosystems. Here to help us break down the importance of English language media are Toma Estomina, Deputy Editor at Kiev Independent, and Romeo Kokriatsky, Managing Editor at New Voice of Ukraine. All right, y'all, let's dive into it. First of all, I want to thank both of you for coming on the podcast because I know you all, you both are busy as hell. <laughs> but, you know, before we get into why it's important for the world to have English language media out of Ukraine, I just want to, because there are literally more than 100,000 Russian troops at the border that can strike at any moment. And this is a human real human story and journalists are humans. So Tom, I'm going to start with you, but just by asking, how are you doing? Like, how is your mental health doing? How do you, how do you maintain that while you're reporting on all of this madness? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, um, it's a pleasure to, um, speak to you tonight. Um, uh, and thanks for checking on me. <laughs> well, in general, I'm doing good actually. And, uh, um, I think, I mean, many Ukrainians, they, they're not tired of emphasizing it again and again that we've been in the state of war with Russia for eight years. Unfortunately, that's reality for us every day, uh, reading news about casualties or ceasefire violations. And that's just our reality. We've come to accept it and um, we've come to get used to it, unfortunately, at this point. And um, of course, this escalation that is happening right now, it's uh, dangerous and it's unprecedented. Uh, and um, as we can see, it's caused um, an international uh, uh, crisis um, of an unprecedented kind also. Um, but um, I'm feeling good. Uh, for several reasons. First of all, um, I love what's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, I love how people are reacting to this. Nobody is panic panicking. I don't see anybody um, being overly uh, anxious or overreacting to this. Um, I haven't. I don't know of anybody except for maybe a couple of foreigners uh, who left the country. I don't know about anybody who made actual plans to leave the country. Maybe to relocate kind of slightly a bit, you know, to some remote uh, locations to make sure that their family is safe, they're safe. But um, rather than that, I don't know such stories, such thoughts. 
um, I haven't seen panic buying, which actually happened during COVID, for instance, you know, during the pandemic, we had some panic buying just because you guys had it too, you know, <laughs> the beginning of the pandemic, the famous uh, toilet paper meme. Uh, I mean, everyone experienced it in the world because it was something new. We, we all uh, uh, didn't know um, what was going to happen and we were a bit uh, worried. Um, so we overreacted. But right now I don't see it in Ukraine. And that's what makes me very calm. And um, I love those. I love reading about those polls where, where more than, more than half of Ukrainians say that they will actively resist to Russian invasion. Um, where people say that uh, they will step up and they will join the territorial defense units. Um, I know my people. And um, I'm proud to be Ukrainian and I'm proud to be in this moment with them, this unity. It's actually, it's interesting how I experienced uh, being fired from the Kyiv post uh, just a couple of months ago. And we stayed as a team together and launched something new. And uh, that unity, that's what gave us strength to go through that crisis moment as just professionals and journalists. But uh Right now, that's, I think, something similar that I'm experiencing. We're facing this uh, all-out invasion and um, possibly a very traumatic experience, but uh, we're all together in this, and uh, that's what makes me calm. And uh, uh, to every friend uh, that is uh, slightly panicking and asking me, like, uh, what is going to happen, uh, and, like, telling me that I read about this, I read about that, you know, like a U.S. embassy evacuating some of the stuff or something else that, that makes them worry. I tell to all of them that um, uh, I read all news about this situation every single day. I'm not worried. That's got to tell you something, yeah. you know, and uh, that, that always works. Good. Yeah, because <laughs> we're going to definitely talk about... Um, that massive firing at the Kiev Post and how you all became Kiev independent and how important it is now more than ever to have independent media that um, where you don't have these overlords that are oppressing what you can do and everything like that. Um, so, but thank you for sharing that with us. So Romeo brother, how you doing? Well, I wouldn't say, I mean, thank, first off, yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, big, big fan of the pod. Um, in terms of my mental state, I wouldn't say I'm quite as calm. <laughs> there was this line I heard from um, uh, a journalist I respect here in Ukraine, Natalia Gumanuk, uh, who was giving an interview to uh, some American news station. And she said this uh, this phrase, doomed optimism, which I, I completely felt. It's, uh, I wouldn't call it fatalism. It is the, a very sincere hope that things will not go badly, that there will not be... Uh, an invasion that the war will stay confined to kind of the situation that it has been so far. But at the same time, people are prepared, right? We're not blind. Uh, clearly, having a hostile nation's army raid on your borders is not something that you just brush off. But what can we do? We live here, and this is our land and our country. It's not like we... we can go anywhere. And it's not like we want to go anywhere. Right. And so I want to touch on that. Right. I want to uh, ask about your respective um, news organizations 
observation of Western coverage because you both have a role, a unique role as English language based organizations here. And my first question to you, uh, Toma, is do you find that some of the information or news in the West tends to be over dramatic? Does it tend to play into hysteria? And is that something that you all at the Kiev Independent uh, think about as you um, as, as you plan your coverage? I wouldn't necessarily actually actually say that that um, the coverage is uh, overly dramatic, um, but um, because we you know as journalists, uh, just like a country that is facing the war, they're preparing they're preparing for the worst. Uh, in the same way, I'd say journalists we cover everything that is alarming or seems alarming because it's important to inform um, your audience um, about everything that might uh, be dangerous, but um, it's important the way you frame it and the way you give context and uh, the way you, you know, like if President Volodymyr Zelensky seems like he's downplaying this threat, then we're also given alternative uh, reports in the same story saying that other reports, you know, are contradicting. They're saying that the threat might be actually imminent. And um, in the same way, um, I think uh, it is very important actually to uh, report on everything that seems alarming, but um, just make sure that you have that right context and um, explain that uh, in a way that your audience is not going to go back right away and um, um, and um, just uh, find itself in this panicking uh, mode. Um, but what does bother me about Western coverage um, of uh, the situation right now and uh, of Ukraine um, at more peaceful times, uh, I would say, as well, is um, some of the language that is being used and um, the way this crisis is being characterized. First of all, I, I actually, you know, I do it myself sometimes because it's so, like, you hear it all the time, but, but calling this a crisis... It's um, actually um, a bit insensitive, I would say, in a way that it's a war. It's a full-scale war. Um, yes, uh, we're facing something bigger, but it's a real war. And many of my foreign friends, because they hear the word crisis, they would ask me, um, so do you think it will actually get violent if they invade? And what I have to say is that it, it got violent in 2014. Russia actually did invade Ukraine back then and saying that it would invade again, which many Western media do these days, is wrong as well because there's an ongoing war. Yes, the recent year and a half has been relatively peaceful. We've had um, less ceasefire violations, we've had less casualties, but... Would you call it an occupation? Of course it's an occupation. Yeah. It's occupation of um, uh, part of the country. It's an occupation of Crimea. It's an occupation of uh, uh, parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. Uh, and um, and uh, that's why I call it a crisis. While, while in fact it's a war that uh, killed more than 13,000 people, I find it a bit insensitive. And um, that's why um, 
in, in that way, like it's a, it's a small thing, but nearly every story in Western media starts with if Russia invades again or when Russia invades, I'm sorry, but Russia did invade. It's an ongoing war. And that's why what we try to use at the Cuban Independent, the language we try to use is if Russia, if Russia invades further or if Russia launches a full blown up all out war, you know, so um, and when you read that, you understand that there's a smaller war going on happening. It's not um, it's not something that is going to be right. completely new. So that I would think uh, that I would say is uh, what bothers me the most about Western coverage. Right. How do you think about the use of language, particularly um dealing with a crisis and things like that, because you all just got, you're just up and running. So how is it for you all jumping into this? Because the Kiev independent, they were together, they have continuity. They just formed a new entity, but you all at the uh, new voice of Ukraine, um, it's a different circumstance. So just tell me about that. Sure. Well, first I'll say that the new voice in Ukraine, we're not completely new. We are, in large parts, adapting coverage uh, that our parent organization, NV, uh, which is one of Ukraine's leading uh, weekly newspaper or weekly magazines, um, and we're adopting a lot of their coverage, uh, though obviously not completely, not directly. Um, the context when working with Ukrainian or Russian language news is very different when working with uh, English language news. But specifically about Western coverage and the language you use. It's definitely been a learning experience of not falling into the same rhetorical traps um, as Toma just lined out. Um, the, like, calling it a crisis, calling it a new invasion and, and things like that. Uh, like Toma said, it, it, these are minor issues, but they really frame the narrative in a way that is misleading if, if you don't have the entire context. Um, one of my, I guess, pet peeves, <laughs> I would call them, uh, when reading about Western, uh, when reading Western coverage, uh, of the, uh, of the conflict and of the, the risk of this renewed or furthered Russian invasion is the equivocation they often make between the Russian Ukrainian sides. When, and I'm referring to calling things like rebel hair territory rebel-held territory or referring to the the Russian proxy forces or undeclared Russian forces as separatists uh, and things like that really make it seem like this is some kind of minor border dispute at, at best. Um, and if you only read Western coverage, then that, that kind of image is very clear. Obviously, here on the ground in Ukraine, we know that that is not the case. We know that all of the all this talk of rebel forces and separatists are literally just Russian propaganda, uh, made up quite explicitly to promote this narrative in uh, in the rest of the world to promote this narrative that uh, this that Ukraine is such an unstable place where you just have gangsters and warlords all over the place. And again, that's that's not true at all. Uh, Ukraine is an incredibly safe country, discounting the Russians, of course. But it's 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 really minor things like that that 
make us take a very close look at how we're reporting on things for the world. Because one of our goals as the new voice of Ukraine is to provide a Ukrainian English language voice and to push back against these narratives. And paying attention to the wording we use, how we frame the conflict, uh, making sure to include the context of the conflict is, I think, crucial to, to making sure that the Ukrainian perspective is not forgotten. I totally agree with Romeo, of course, but um, I also wanted to add just that uh, this kind of language when uh, describing what's happening in the east of Ukraine as separatists or rebels or um, uh, anything of that kind, uh, fighting for uh, autonomy or independence or whatever, this plays not only in the narrative that Ukraine is unsafe, but also in uh, the Kremlin's narrative that there's a civil war in Ukraine, which is totally not true and um, they've been pushing this propaganda about uh, Ukrainian and Russian uh, speaking Ukrainians not getting along and uh, fighting and uh, this has been happening in Ukraine for years I remember it you know as a school child I remember every election and uh, all politicians like pro-Kremlin politicians using this kind of uh, narrative to divide the uh the ukrainians and uh um and it was uh it was great to finally break from that narrative when you know we this war started and uh, just the russian um not not russian but pro-kremlin uh politicians in ukraine kind of their power um this is just decreased unprecedentedly you know they used to be uh, more influential so uh, thankfully we don't hear this narrative uh, as much uh, in Ukraine anymore but it is true it is being spread still but by such huge um, uh, packed with cash machines like RT that is financed by the Kremlin and that's why we're going back to this English uh, language journalism from Ukraine why it's important because they are pouring so much money um, every day into spreading these narratives. And then Western media, um, I'm sure by mistake, unwillingly pick up some of the things and call them, uh, I mean, Russian-led militants call them separatists, or they say that it's a crisis or that it's a, it will be a renewed invasion, when in fact we know that it's right. different. And, uh, and that's... Uh, where we're going back to the purpose, right? This uh, mission that uh, both uh, the new voice of Ukraine and the Cuban independence are carrying right now. Right. I want to touch on several things that you said when you talk about the ways in which Western media, um, you know, there's certain things that you pick up on, and this thing of of looking at these. Uh, in fact, when I when talking about the people who are occupying uh, Luhansk and Donbas and Crimea. Um, in American journalism, we have this very precarious word called objectivity <laughs> and people presume that if they say rebel, that they're being objective. So that's something that I've always pushed back against because in American media, especially mainstream kind of white dominated media, and I'm one of the only people, Romeo knows this about me. I talk a lot about the racism in American media. 
And in many ways, it reflects in the coverage of Ukraine. Because I know that Putin looks at things through a very ethnic lens, uh, for example, but it goes back to this whole thing about rebels and things. And so what it does is that it minimizes the harm of the aggressor and it tries to neutralize the harm of the aggressor with the victim. And mainstream media in America tends to do that to say there has to be some legitimacy to one side when it's perfectly okay to say that one side is being aggressive and they were unprovoked because that's what's happening with um, the Kremlin's attack against Ukraine. This was not provoked. And so this is one aggressor abusing someone else that they deem as a weaker um, nation. But objectivity in American media doesn't call a thing a thing. I'm just saying that it's not just about Ukraine. It's the way that American media treats a lot of peoples, particularly marginalized communities in the United States. I don't think a lot of people really know much about the Kiev Independent. People have gotten used to the Kiev Post because you know how branding works. Once people get used to Kiev Post, it takes them a while to get used to the new uh, renaming. So I think this is important for our listeners to hear about how media works in Ukraine, because when I was at my last job, I was a part of a union. And if someone did a mass firing without any reason, they needed to have paid me three months, three months salary, three months health insurance. And so I had a number of packages. So we had legal rights. They did. They just could not drop us. But in Ukraine, you don't have that. So just tell us about what happened there, because uh, right now, you're the deputy editor right now at the Kiev Independent. But just tell us about what happened and how you became the Kiev uh, Independent from the Kiev Post. Um, definitely. You, you're right that um, a brand has this huge power and um, it is being recognized. And um, there, there's also a thing of just having a habit and going back to the familiar source or familiar website and... Uh, of course, that's why when we um, faced what we faced at the Kiev Post back in November, we uh, tried to save that brand at the newspaper and we had ne negotiations with the owner of the newspaper, um, Adnan Kivan. Uh, so what actually happened was that um, he wanted to... Um, uh, he wanted to appoint uh, an editor to the newsroom uh, over the head of our chief editor. And uh, that was an editor who worked for his local media in uh, Odessa. We call those plants in America. Yeah, He's going to be a plant. Southern, yeah. southern <laughs> Ukraine. And um, it was a TV channel where she worked um, and which seemed more like a press service for his business and his family mm -hmm. rather than um, actual journalism, which is why we had our concerns about her fitting into what we do, we used to do at the Cave Post and what we do now at the Cave Independent, which is um, independent, truly independent journalism, um, adhering to the highest standards of journalism and journalistic ethics. And uh, um, that is why when he tried to appoint her, um, we told him that uh, we would like her to go through this um, hiring process, the one that each and everyone went through when 
got hired and um, uh, which is uh, of course uh, interviews maybe a test assignment you know just the regular uh, process but uh, he refused and he got uh, apparently mad about us not accepting uh, what he wanted to do with this um, newspaper and um, and uh, one day we just came to a Monday morning general meeting to hear that we're all fired uh, all 50 people and um, uh, it was a shock of course on one hand on the other hand it wasn't because um, with him trying to influence the editorial policy and uh, um, and the work of the newsroom in general um, we started to anticipate that kind of some sort of resolution that we won't be happy about and that's exactly what happened um, so we lost our jobs uh, then uh, um, there was a huge backlash and like in just two days we saw 200 public uh, publications uh, all over the world uh, about um, us being fired and uh, um, and uh, he kind of uh, didn't expect it um, as far as we understand and he decided to back down and he asked us to go back and kind of said that it's not what you thought it was you can continue to work we're just gonna pause this publication for some time and then we're gonna resume but you can all keep your jobs but it was clear to us at that moment that uh, of course uh, he won't let us um, do our job independently in the way we used to do it and uh, um, he wanted to put uh, to appoint new management uh, which again we had concerns about so we only had one thing um, to do at that point and uh, of course we left uh, and as far as we know um, the Kiev Post after it resumed they had uh, troubles with finding a chief editor for a while because obviously nobody would want to risk their reputation as far as we know some people with really good reputation rejected this offer because they didn't want to get involved into something that doesn't seem like it will be real journalism and uh, um, and we just uh, decided to stay together as a team and launch our own publication for several reasons because as we all mentioned here um, Ukraine needs English language journalism and like Russia that puts uh, so much money into this and uh, sponsors um, its own state uh, English speaking media Ukraine doesn't have one Briefly, I just want to encourage people. You basically, all you guys um, started a Patreon, right? And so, because I want to get people into that. So you all started a Patreon and um, I'm one of them. So I'm one of the monthly folks to to give. And I actually have the one where I can join into the meetings and stuff, but I haven't done it yet, but I will because I'm sure that it's interesting uh, or, or I think I could help with um, story development or something like that. But um, you all started a Patreon, which... You know, it's an interesting model for Ukraine because I'm not sure about how economically what people pay for in regards to media in Ukraine. But when in America, the New York Times and other publications started charging, people went batshit crazy. And I were like, oh, my God, these publications are never going to survive. Right. Because think about what we do. Think about what journalism is. Journalism one, it's one of the few businesses that produces something new every day. 
think about it. A car model comes out every year. Different clothing lines. You have your summer, spring, winter, fall. But with journalism, you're producing something new every single day. That is a very difficult product to churn out at a high quality. And forever, at least in America and in most places, people were paying, were not paying for it. And so it's just fascinating that you have hundreds of patrons, regardless of where they are in the world, that people have focused on Ukraine. It just shows you how much people respected the work of the Kiev Post where you all formerly worked and what you're trying to do right now. And it seems like it just further empowers you because you don't have this overseer at my last job. The same thing happened different. You know, there's a saying in the Caribbean, different island. Same bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 but, but it was the same thing that happened to us. And we gave him hell. Not only that, we were unionized and he quit in about a few months because we made his, and we weren't trying to make his life miserable. The problem was that this guy was getting paid a lot of money to deal with us because we were Gawker. And I don't know if you heard of Gawker. Gawker, uh, we ultimately, we were sued by Hulk Hogan. Uh, you know who Gawker is. And yeah. Gawker is, um, we were considered a bunch of assholes. Who, but in a way, we punched up. You know, you, you didn't go after the little people. But at any rate, I'm just saying that um, you all started a Patreon. You know, and I, we can get into that towards the end. Um, because I think that's something important for folks to know. But I want to get to Romeo, where you were talking about this. Um, she, you were you were finishing up some. Yeah, I mean, you you said it perfectly. Different island, same shit. Uh, <laughs> at UATV, we had the same thing. We started off as as this wide eyed, sorry, idealists. A bunch of, I mean, it was my introduction to to proper journalism, to be honest. Um, and you had a bunch of very starry eyed new journalists on the scene. Uh, and we were kind of doing all right. I think it could have been a proper product, but at some point, um, the Poroshenko administration, which was in power uh, at the time, decided that we required more oversight. And they introduced a person I nicknamed very uh, affectionately, the Commissar, which was uh, a former producer at uh, Poroshenko's TV's channel, uh, Channel 5. And... She overstepped who uh, our acting editor-in-chief at the time and started setting directions of how we're supposed to report on things, how we're, the tone we're supposed to take in certain pieces. Uh, and obviously, we might have been new, but we were still journalists and we knew that wasn't right. And, of course, UATV never took off because it could never change from basically a propaganda out, uh, outlet into proper real journalism that would have provided, I think, a very useful service with, of course, safe backing. But <laughs> same shit, different day. <laughs> right. So I want to get, cause that's the thing, right? And what I, I think what it also speaks to is that people understand what they're getting in same islands, you know, um, different islands, same bullshit. People know if they're reading shit. Right. And well, okay. Well, yeah, true. Uh, I, I know I saw <laughs> your face. So, so we're, so, no, no, you're correct. What I, let me clarify what I was going to say. You have savvy, savvy readers can know what's bullshit, but unfortunately, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. And so savvy readers can know what bullshit is, but unfortunately so many people are not savvy. And that's what I want to talk to you about Toma and going back to disinformation and how, um, 
how Ukraine deals with the Russian disinformation and where that puts you, where, where that puts uh, you as a news outlet and how you respond to it. So can you just talk to me about the ways in which you all filter through disinformation and how do you use your platform to correct it so that English language um, outlets will look to you as a source as opposed to mistakenly or unwittingly um, get something from RT or some propaganda, Russian propaganda channel? Um, uh, actually, when you said that uh, readers can um, see the bullshit, I thought immediately of one uh, person, one foreigner I, I talked to recently, and he told me that uh, um, he checks RT for object objectivity, which is exactly what you mentioned when you talked about uh, you're bullshitting. <laughs> You're bullshitting. <laughs> For objectivity, but there's a. I'm sorry, but there's a line, uh, and you can't. Uh, is this person used to Ukraine? Is this person uh, a vet? Has he been? Is he familiar yeah, with this? Not, not much. Okay. Not as much. Okay. Yes. Um. But um. Yeah, I was surprised, and uh, it's uh, <laughs> of course there's there's always should there's there there always should be objectivity, and especially in journalism, it's very important to have that balance. And you can't just accuse someone of something and not give them an opportunity to speak against it if they want to. Um, and that's what we always try to adhere to um, at the Cuban Independent. Uh, but also, if someone is convicted with something, um, there uh, there's evidence. And, uh, you know, that you can ask that person, but uh, that's a good question, whether their, their opinion actually adds to the objectivity or they're just providing, you know, the, their alternative reality uh, of something. And that goes back to Russia's war, actually. And when you say that uh, U.S. media try to portray people fighting in the East against Ukraine as uh, rebels or separatists, uh, they definitely downplay Russia's war, and um, that's not objectivity because this war is and Russia's involvement, not involvement, but actually Russia's um, um, how do you say, <laughs> Russia being the initiator of this war, basically, um, and the reason this war started. Um, it uh, it is well documented, and uh, we have reports from the OSCE. We have, um, we actually recently had a Russian court accidentally spilling, you know, like publishing documents I saw that, that. actually prove that Russia's, uh, um, uh, that Russia's military presence in the east of Ukraine. So saying that you need to reach out to Russia and provide their uh, alternative opinion uh, on something that is proven and documented, that's not really objectivity. That's... Uh, um, really playing into some propaganda na narratives and um, um, of course you have to filter through it and um, what we're doing at the Cuban Independent I think we're so you know we have this very nice balance uh, in the newsroom we have foreigners and we have Ukrainians and it's a very um, it's a very nice mixture because we really help each other and while foreigners can give us um, their perception, uh, their knowledge of how the West treats Ukraine or how the West thinks of Ukraine, perceives Ukraine. We, as Ukrainians here on the ground, we've grown up here, you know, and we know this country 
of course, very well. And uh, we have this context that is very hard um, to have if you come here for a couple of months, a year, or as we see it now a lot, you know, like every day, I'm sure Romeo too, we get messages from foreign journalists asking for contacts of fixers, of journalists, of photographers who can help them find stories on the ground here. And uh, we have like journalists pretty much parachuting from abroad in Kiev these days and in the East. And they come here for a week or two or three. They do like a bunch of stories, go back and forget about Ukraine for another two years until Russia threatens another um, uh, full-scale invasion or something worse. And um, of course, um, we thank them for this attention and for coming and for covering what's happening. But at the same time, um, there's a difference between this underground reporting and uh, there's a difference between a team that is following closely what's happening here every day and knows all the developments. You speak Ukrainian and Russian. You're all native speakers, and that obviously helps. I mean, yes, actually, <laughs> in our newsroom, uh, all foreigners speak uh, Russian and Ukrainian uh, on certain level, and all Ukrainians obviously speak uh, English uh, because we produce um, journalism in, in English every day. So basically. We don't need to. Uh, we don't. We don't need really tools. You know how to. Um, uh, how to discover some disinformation? It's like when there's disinformation on the Russian side, it just immediately stands out to us because we follow this every day and we know what's happening in Ukraine. Right. So that's what I said. What we're trying to do is to pay attention to things as little as language and as you know some details. We we call it. We always call it Russia's war because. That's what it is. And it started not with the invasion in the east of Ukraine, but it started with the occupation of Crimea. That was the first thing. So that's what, what we're trying to do. And of course, if Russia comes out with uh, Putin's article, which uh, he published in uh, this summer, saying that Ukraine and Russia is uh, one people, one nation, and uh, is trying to prove that, that, he, that, there's, that there's a historically false understanding of what Ukrainians and Russians are, then of course we come out with a uh, with an article because that article was published in English as well, you know? So um, then we of course come out with an article that explains why this is false because we understand how big of an audience that article was. Yeah, have. exactly. You know, and of course it needs explanation and yeah. uh, can be very tricky to figure to out. To figure it out, historical yeah. Intricacies and, right. Uh, so I want to, yeah, that's, that's a point, right? Because I know when I saw that, I called it a, a nice piece of fiction and revisionism. And the thing about it is that another challenge is for Western, for Western media is that they tend to lean on experts who understand Russia very well, but don't understand Ukraine. And this is the example that I give to Western media, Romeo, is um, how, and I tell this to people, especially I work in black media as well, African-American media. And I would say, I understand that in, in the American context, I'm going to tell you how Americans think. These are a bunch of white people fighting each other. That's the American context. And my response is, do you think Nigerians and South Africans and Ethiopians are the same? Do you think that Chinese and Japanese and Koreans are the same? 
Ukrainians and Russians are not the same. You know, their their own distinct histories, countries, and to not distinguish that, it plays into the disinformation. It plays into this fiction that Putin writes. Um, Romeo, I'm especially interested in how you all deal with disinformation. And I want to particularly, you can start off with that, but then in your answer, also tell me about your opinion of how the um, previous government, I believe it was under Poroshenko, closed down three um, news channels, right? <clears throat> and it was because it was, you know, cited for propaganda, et cetera. And in America, that's something that would be unheard of, right? But it was very necessary here. I just want to get your thoughts on disinformation, if you could touch on that. Sure. And I want to start by saying, Terrell, that, you know, I've been a journalist in Ukraine for quite a while now, and I've, I've done a lot of disinformation work, um, and I've gotten to, you can call it a hardline position. I think bullshit should be called out, because when a lie is a lie, arguing against it purely with factual counterarguments, in my experience, has not been the best tactic. What is the best tactic? Is just outright saying this has no evidence, it's bullshit, and it's a lie. Um, I have to, on a daily basis, basically, uh, edit and write articles uh, quoting uh, one of the Kremlin's favorite propaganda mouthpieces, the uh, spokesman Dmitry Peskov. And every single word out of that man's mouth, and the same thing goes with their foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, it drives me up a wall. I am pretty much incensed on a, on a daily basis because every single word that comes out of his mouth is a lie. So even when I do as something as you would think as innocent as quoting this, uh, you know, press spokesman of the, the, uh, a representative of a foreign country, I can't just put his quote in there because it's all bullshit. Every single word, hell, even the articles are bullshit. <laughs> um, not that Russian has articles, but it's, uh, so I found the best way to really get the point across that this is not a perspective worth entertaining is simply to say that this is false information. This is disinformation directly in the article, directly in the piece, uh, to quote it in the Twitter post, everything. So people understand that this is not an opposing perspective. This is not a difference of opinion. It is a lie. Every time the Russians claim that they aren't in the Donbass, for example, this is Again, not a matter of perspective. It's it's just a lie. As you pointed out, there are court cases in Russia that prove it's a lie. Uh, every time the Russians say that we're not threatening Ukraine, I immediately follow up with the 100,000 plus troops and uh, material and equipment that we have arrayed in our border. These are not the actions of a peaceful country. Um, when there was that week of negotiations uh, recently, between Russia and NATO and the U.S. and the OSCE, uh, and Russia was laying out all of their guarantees, I made very sure to, to point out that these were not legitimate good-faith arguments, that, that this was bullshit. What Russia wants is not what they say, because that has never been how the Russian government and how the Kremlin operates, and definitely not how Vladimir Putin operates, considering he is literally an ex-KGB agent. Uh, telling the truth is... An antithetical to his uh to his very core so i think it's not just enough to to say it's disinformation and, and give counter arguments i think it's 
very important to strongly insist that this is quite simply crap. That's just a verbal diarrhea being spewed out of their mouths. It's a grift. It's a con. Right. And I can tell you, um, I want to touch back on something I said earlier. A lot of the experts that are brought on these shows, they understand Russia, but they don't understand Ukraine. And so I spend a lot of time explaining Ukraine. And one of the reasons why I uh, decided to focus on Ukraine and Georgia is because I think it's very important to understand this region through the lens of colonialism. Right. And understand how these nations exist outside of this so-called sphere of influence. That's another word phrase that is used. Right. The sphere of influence. Right. But it's a euphemism. It's a, yes. Yes. You're correct. It's a euphemism. You're correct about that. The problem is that when these people helicopter into Ukraine, many times they don't have the regional knowledge. And so they come in and it, it just reminds me of how Ferguson was covered. And so American media had a rude awakening after Ferguson. And so the way that media talk about black Americans has completely changed because media via Twitter, via Facebook, it gave regular people more access. Right. And so inside of America, you see this forced awakening it was painful because a lot of mainstream media folks like white Americans in particular didn't want to do it, but had no choice. What I see in foreign affairs media is that I feel like there's similar awakening needs to take place with places like Ukraine. And what makes my interest in it so strong is that I see the inequities in the coverage. And I think in many instances, they don't, uh, many people don't do it on purpose, but a lot of it is they're not going to read the OSCE reports. A lot of people are not going to go and realize that there was this judge, you know, that a court that accidentally, you know, that accidentally released files simply because this is kind of not their beat. But at the same time, because you have a huge, because American media has such huge platforms, there should be an obligation and a dedication to that. And so that's definitely part of the problem. And so I want to close out um, by talking about your organizations and how people can support them. So I started earlier by talking about the Patreon that you all have, because this goes back to in order to support the work that you both are doing, then it needs to have support and we need to pay for media because you all don't um, find money off trees. Ukraine has, it's a very green city but the type of green that you need, <laughs> the type of green that you need doesn't grow on the trees here. And even though it looks beautiful during the spring and the summer. So, uh, Thoma, just tell me about the um, about the Patreon and about how you all sustain yourselves and how my listeners can support you. Yeah, so um, first of all, uh, going back to what you mentioned already, thank you for the kind words and thank you for supporting us personally. Um, it's true that, uh, um, as I mentioned, we were very much inspired and um, we were um, motivated uh, by our unity when we were fired, but we also were overwhelmed with uh, the support of our community. And uh, many people supported us and followed us and um, sent us hundreds of messages every day, starting the day when we were fired. So 
we kind of felt safe in that way that it proved that people needed what we did, they appreciated what we did, and they wanted us to keep on doing it. And uh, you, I agree that the subscription or um, paying for journalism in general is um, something that requires really like educating people and uh, spreading awareness because uh, especially in Ukraine, people don't appreciate journalism for what it is very often. Why? Because we have this very a particular kind of uh, media climate where we have oligarchs owning media, pouring money into them and giving information for free. And people are just used to it um, being free, just like air, you know, you don't pay for air. Make people pay for it. Why would I do it? I have it for free. So um, that's, um, there's definitely no culture when it comes to paying for journalism in Ukraine, but part of our audience is foreign part of our audience are highly educated ukrainians who speak foreign languages if you don't mind ask if you don't mind telling me and you don't have to how much of your uh support base on patreon or uh, elsewhere is foreign uh well actually we're we're still uh, in the process of measuring our audience because it's growing every single day and we're building this new company as you can imagine but in general it um mm, um most of it is foreign, and uh, but there's a big chunk, I think around 30% Ukrainians. And um, most of our foreign audience is uh, Northern America. So that would be US and Canada, and then UK, Europe, Asia, and uh, honestly, all corners of the world. And um, yes, we do have that support, and it converted into... Um, actual financial support uh, through Patreon. We started Patreon um, because we simply needed money for some operational things at the beginning. Now we have um, 750 patrons, uh, people who have different kinds of subscriptions who pay from anywhere from $5 to $100 a month. That's good. And 700 is so that's that's and um and um we um appreciate these people of course and uh we actually try to maintain a very close relationship with them because we want to keep hearing what they think what we need to improve we have like uh um, an internal chat where we talk to them and they tell us what um, what they would like to see us do more and um, cover more um and uh, we actually also uh, launched GoFundMe and uh, we um, fundraised more than 13,000 pounds right now, which, uh, you know, like unlike our patrons who get certain advantages as our readers and, uh, um, and community members, uh, people who donated on GoFundMe, they, they don't get any, they just did it because they believe in us i i believe <laughs> um so yes it's been overwhelming and that's what we're going to try to um continue to do uh, maintain this close relationship grow our audience uh, and uh, carry on uh, this mission of uh, telling the world what uh, ukraine truly is and uh, um so yes i invite everyone to go to kivindependent.com and there's a there's a box where you can uh, go to 
Patreon and uh, subscribe and support and uh, uh, talk to us and uh, get some insights um, and we would be um, more than happy um, to have you as our reader. Absolutely. Thank you. And by the way, in the show notes, there will be links to not only the site, but also the Patreon and other ways that you can give. So all of those links will be available in the show notes. So Romeo, tell us about uh, your your outfit and uh, New Voice of Ukraine and and how you all plan on um, creating a you know, what's the economic structure and just uh, ways that we can support you all. Sure. Uh, the the best way to support us because we are so new, we're still finding our footing. Uh, financially, we are stable at the moment. Luckily, thanks to our parent organization. But English language news in Ukraine has always had kind of a negative reputation amongst Ukrainians. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Kiev Post, uh, before it stopped being the Kiev Post, (laughs) is how I consider it, was so combative um, and was very much a hard-hitting news organization. And that obviously made a lot of the Ukrainian elite upset. Uh, which I think that is the job of a journalist. Um, I yeah. completely. Yeah. <laughs> you know how many people I've had pissed. I mean, I've I've covered two U.S. presidential campaigns, I can and I've I've had a number of people get pissed at me for all kinds of reasons at the highest level. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's if you can't handle that, then I mean that that comes with the job. Exactly. Yeah, that, but because yeah. of this, a lot of Ukrainian <laughs> news organizations were always very iffy about launching their own English services because they didn't want the trouble. They didn't want to to bring all this heat on them. The Ukrainian media landscape, as Thomas uh, said, is very different. It's very oligarch-driven. And as a result, Ukrainians themselves don't really respect journalists because what a journalist is to the average Ukrainian is not what we picture in our heads. Uh, They see them mostly as purveyors of very biased uh, information, typically speaking. So... For our project to be successful, all I want uh, your listeners to do, Terrell, is just to go and read us at english.mv.ua, to follow us on Twitter at New Voice Ukraine, and to like us on Facebook. And if our metrics are good, hopefully that will start changing minds about how useful English language reporting in Ukraine is. Absolutely. So I'm going to make sure to put all of those hyperlinks in the show notes. Go ahead. Go ahead. You had something else to say. And... On a personal level, uh, I'm not just uh, an editor at uh, the New Voice of Ukraine. I also have a podcast called Ukraine Without Hype, where we deliver uh, the weekly news and the biggest headlines in Ukraine in English. And we are independent, and we would love some financial backing. So tell us what the was there a Patreon? Is there a? We're launching our Patreon, I believe, this week. Well, you need to do it soon so I can put it in the notes when I eventually... (laughs) I'll send you the link. Okay. (laughs) Because, I mean, the whole point is to help people to get you money. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We personally would love it. Um, Running a podcast takes a lot of work. Oh, And uh, not everyone likes to read, as I've discovered. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, another thing, the reason why I had you both on the show is that I think that various forms of media ought to be supported. And I know... You know, the work of, I know you personally, and we've just met Toma, but I know the Kiev Independent, and I know all the people out there. 
and I respect your work. And so I'm, I believe in supporting a wide range of media because the more media in my mind that is available to people in English for people to read about Ukraine and what's happening, the better. I want to thank the both of you for taking time out of your day to appear on my podcast, which I use to amplify what's happening in this region, but also in Georgia and Central Asia, etc. And what I specialize in is I only use people who are indigenous to the countries to appear on the show. So if I'm talking about Ukraine, I bring Ukrainians. If I'm talking about Kazakhstan, I bring on Kazakhs. And so I don't bring on the usual white males to talk about their own people. I, I don't. I don't believe in that. And, you know, it's nothing against, you know, people often ask me about black diplomats. And I say, I know it's black diplomats, but I have another reason. I just want people to say black. It's just, I just, you can laugh. It's fine. Because I just, I mean, it's funny because I just want people to. No, I just, I'm not I'm saying it in a funny way. I'm saying it in know. a very proven no, way. No, no, no. In a very, no, no. I get you. No, no. But I'm just saying that's like. I'm a man. I completely yeah, No, no, no. I like, <laughs> no, no. I get, I just want people to say it in that people who are not white males could talk about foreign policy. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I um, yeah, it's, it's, I just, I interviewed Michael McFall, former ambassador to Russia. And people think I don't interview white men. I'm like, yeah, I do interview. No, seriously, people, no, really, people are like, you know, just black different men. I mean, what do you, the hell do you think I am? You think I'm some fucking like, no, I don't. But at the same time, the FBI space, <laughs> especially in the US, has been so white dominated for so long. Yeah, but I mean, all I'm doing is just, you know, I bring people on if you have some legit, like Michael McFall obviously has something legit to say, but if I could bring in somebody who has the knowledge, I'm going to bring that person over the typical, you know, white male. I mean, you can go any place else in the freaking world and get all that stuff, but black diplomats is for people like you, you know, Romeo and you, Toma, who come on to talk about your country from your perspective, because that's the most important one that we need to hear. So again, thank you both for appearing and um, may, you know, and, and more power to you. Thanks a lot for having us, man. I appreciate having Romeo and Toma on the show, breaking down the English language media landscape here in Ukraine and why you should be supporting them financially. I have links to the Kiev Independence Patreon in the show notes below. To support New Voice of Ukraine, go to their Facebook and Twitter pages and follow them. Those links are also in the show notes. To better help me keep this knowledge coming, and at a very critical period in which Russia is ramping up its aggression against Ukraine, I'm going to need y'all's support. My producer Michael and I are working very hard to keep these episodes coming each week, and we want to improve on them. So if you can kindly go to Black Diplomats Patreon and support us there, I'd greatly appreciate it. And you can also go to your favorite podcast platform, preferably iTunes, and leave a five-star review. Those reviews really help with the algorithm and get the podcast noticed. And I'm on all of the socials. So please follow me on Twitter at Russian underscore star and on Instagram at Terrell J star. That's star with two R's on both handles. Thank you so much again for tuning in and talk to y'all next week.